you ever remember how to read your parents when they were in those kinds of particular states? I don't think my mom and dad are doing well right now. And a lot of times it was when you had done something or you had not done something you were supposed to do. And you saw them get frustrated with you. And normally what would happen is they would pull out your middle name. And you knew when your middle name was put, your whole name, that we've got something going here. Or have you ever seen uh, your parents be frustrated? I know this has happened to me with my children. I have four. And you're trying to get, get them to move or change or do something. And you start calling out every name of every kid that's in your household. And you finally say, whatever your name is, whatever your name do it! Right? What do you do when you get under pressure? What happens when you are in a place of sometimes oppression, sometimes suffering, whether it's suffering that uh, has something that's come upon you because of uh, a choice that you've made or suffering that has come because of other people? What do you do when you are under affliction? We began a series a few weeks ago in the book of Revelation. John, the apostle, elderly years, on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. He was there because he was being under affliction and suffering because he was a proclaimer of Christ in a world that did not appreciate it. And so he was a prisoner on this island. And on this island, he had uh, this uh, moment of worship when he was worshiping God. And, and Jesus Christ, who had risen from the dead and ascended to the heavens, whose very spirit had possessed the apostle Paul, John, through the years, the very presence of Jesus came and met him on that island. And he turned around and he beheld one like a son of man. And the son of man told him to write down what he would see told them to send seven letters. Seven letters to churches that were just across the sea area into the the proper area of Turkey today, what was known then as Asia Minor. And they were seven cities with seven churches. And Jesus wanted them to have a letter. And so he sent the letter through John. The revelation that was given to John, not just in those letters, but through all uh, the 20-some chapters of uh, the Revelation, is a revelation not of John, but it was the revelation of Jesus to his people, to his church. And if you've ever studied the book of Revelation, you go, whoa, it's getting a little over the top, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, judgment upon the world. But the context of Revelation is one of great hope. But it's not just future that Jesus wanted to give words of hope. He wanted to give words of hope in the present. And the people that were in these seven churches in these seven cities were going through all kinds of things. And the church that we're going to look at today is the second church, the second letter. These are the particular um, places that... um, These are the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna... Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They were on this particular kind of route, almost like a mail route. And so we looked at Ephesus the few couple weeks ago and referenced that Ephesus was doing a lot of great works, remember? But they had lost something. What had they lost? They'd lost their first love. 
And so normally in these letters, you would come across words of commendation, but then there are words of condemnation and, and challenge that came to them. And so we move on to the letter to the church in Smyrna. And I'd like to read that letter to you. That letter is spoken of directly this way out of the NIV. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Smyrna, one of the seven cities, is the only city that still exists today in modern times. It's now called Izmir. It's in Turkey. Smyrna had a lot of ups and downs. They would thrive. They were a great uh, metropolis kind of area. And then they would be conquered and they would be destroyed. But today, it still stands. The ruins still stand The Agora, the commercial area, is the only place that really still remains, but it's in the middle of all the modern city that's around it. And Smyrna was probably um, somewhere around, um, you know, the next major seaport north of Ephesus. It was the direct line, ship line, to Europe, being an Asian miner. If you went straight west of Smyrna, modern-day Izmir, you would find yourself in Greece, right close to Athens. And so it had a lot of commerce. It had a lot of Roman allegiance. It was a faithful city. It was called because of its faithfulness to Rome, who controlled the area at the time. But it had had a history. It had had a history of being conquered. So when Revelation says to in, in chapter 2, 8 through uh, 11, which we just read, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the vision was, the letter was being written to a city who had died and had come back to life. In this particular time, in about 95 uh, A.D., but multiple times before that, in 600 B.C., it was destroyed by the Lydians. And then, Alexander the Great came upon the ruins and the few people that were left there. And he says, I'm going to make it into a great city. And sure enough, about 200 B.C., Alexander the Great made it into a great city again with wide roads. And a lot of things are taken on. And contrary to Ephesus, which had its harbor sort of grown in by all the silt from the river that was there, this remained a vibrant seaport. Today, about 3 million people in Ismar. So you could go there. You could see the ruins. I mentioned to a couple weeks ago I've had the opportunity to go see some ruins, but I didn't get a chance to go to Izmir to see the ruins of Smyrna. Smyrna is interesting in that its name actually means myrrh. In the Greek, Smyrna means myrrh. 
Do you remember the term myrrh anywhere in Scripture? When Jesus was born, they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh that was given to him. Myrrh was a fragrance. You think, well, why would that happen? Well, it was a beautiful fragrance, and the fragrance came from a myrrh tree that was crushed. It was crushed, and as it was crushed, it gave off this fragrance. And they not only used the fragrance for perfume, they used the fragrance for something else. Do you know? Burial. What happened when Jesus died? There was myrrh. And they exported. They were the primary caregivers, if you will, the import and the export of myrrh. And so their very name, Smyrna, means myrrh. And so it was this idea of here is a faithful city to the Romans, a a thriving city, and it was a city that was consumed with the um, industry of myrrh. It's quite interesting when we dive into this little passage because when the Christians at Smyrna were crushed, they gave off an aroma. And the aroma was not one of death. The aroma was one of a great fragrance. What happens to you when you're under pressure and you're being crushed? What kind of fragrance do you give off? What kind of fragrance do I give off when I am in that world of affliction and suffering and challenge? So myrrh is an interesting uh, word as it's tied into the city itself and all that was going on with it. It goes on and it says this, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. We're actually saying about Christ being the first and the last this morning. Do you think Jesus picking these words to the church at Smyrna, he was pointedly reminding them that they were a city that had died, had come back to life. They were experiencing Great affliction as Christians, feeling that maybe they were about to die again. And Jesus comes to them and reminds them, I am the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. I always find it beautiful how Jesus ministers to us and comes to us and speaks to us in a language that we can identify with concerning all that's going on and is a part of our particular life. He then says this, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Let me just stop with the first two words. I know. We mentioned with the church at Ephesus the whole idea that Jesus walked among the golden lampstands, and the lampstands represented the churches, and Jesus would walk up and down, and he would look, and and he would know. He would know what was going on. He would not just be a casual observer. He would be intimately involved in knowing. He would empathize with where the church was at. And so this idea that Jesus is here speaking to them, he speaks to you and I this morning, says, I know. I, I carry, do not know what you're going through this morning. Now, if I went up and down the chair, some of you who I know in general, I could say, well, these are some of the things you maybe have been going through. But deep inside of you, how many of you are going through something this morning that nobody else really knows because no one else really knows that kind of depth of who you are? Oh, you can put on the smile. You can dress up. You can look nice on a Sunday maybe. And I'm glad that you did. 
But Jesus, who is the head of the church, who is the head of this church, the awakening church, be comforted in this, that he knows what's going on in your life right now. And you don't have to desperately look you know, through your contact list to call somebody or to text somebody. You immediately have the presence of God himself, if you're seeking him, who knows what you are going through. So here's the one who was the first and last, who was dead, who had come to life. And he says to you and I this morning, I, I know, I know what you're going through. And here he pulls out this word affliction. Or in another translation, it's tribulation. I know the tribulation that you're going through. It comes from this uh, word, um, the tribulation word comes through the idea of weighted oppression and affliction. Um, so one of the ways that they would torture people in the day would they would take the criminal or the person that they were you know, trying to convict or whatever, and they would lay them out horizontally. And then they would take a big block or a boulder of weight, and they would place it on their chest. And they'd let them stay there for a while, while the pressure was on their chest. Then they would go and they would get another one, and they would stack it on top of their chest. And then they would get another one and stack it on top of their chest. They were adding affliction, tribulation, to tribulation, to tribulation. Now, you and I don't physically have that kind of torture going on in our world. But do you sometimes feel that way emotionally? I just had somebody call me this morning before I come out to start service. They said, could you pray for me? They weren't able to make it today, and they, they had this situation going on. He says, I don't know. that Maybe the adversary, the Satan, is just up against the stacking things. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. Maybe you're there this morning. Jesus says, I know the weighted affliction that's piled on top. And he doesn't turn his back. He turns and he speaks to you. And he encourages you with where you're at. And there were three particular blocks or areas of affliction, tribulation, if you will, that were being stacked on them. And the first is this area of poverty. The Christians in Smyrna were... were, There's a couple words for poverty. There's the the word for poverty that says that, that you're sort of lacking. You're sort of low there on the finances. Your bank account is weak, right? And then there's not too many. Then there's the other word that's like abject poverty. That means you have nothing. And these people were in a wealthy city, these Christians. And they were identified in the second term of having nothing. And why did they not have nothing? It wasn't because they weren't hard workers. They didn't want to be it. It was because of the culture in which they live and the stand that they were making for Jesus Christ as a Christian that ostracized them and placed them in an arena in a place that they had nothing. You see, if you didn't worship the Caesar of the day, if you didn't acknowledge, you know, that uh, Caesar was Lord and you proclaimed Jesus only as Lord, then you weren't given access to be able to sell your goods in a place um, where people were trafficked. And who would want to buy from you anyway? You were one of those Christians. And other reasons attributed to their poverty. But they were in a place of no means whatsoever. Now, it's interesting for us, I think, that Jesus then sort of does this parenthetical thing. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. But then he says, yet you are rich. And you want to say in those moments, come at me again. What's this deal? I am rich. 
I am rich? That's really cruel, Jesus, if you're speaking that to me. But what's Jesus saying? He had said it before when he walked on the earth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. He was talking about the riches that the others did not have any taste of. But they themselves, as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, they were rich. So though they were in poverty, in a material stance, they were richly blessed in spiritual ways and other ways. And God was saying through Jesus in this letter, get your focus set where it needs to be. Some of you are going to go home, check your bank balance this week, maybe today, and go, do I have enough to make ends meet? Do I have enough to pay that bill? You're very mindful of that. In our world, we live in a Western materialistic culture. It gets us what? Consumed with material wealth. And a lot of your highs and lows during the course of a week or a month are dependent on where your bank account is or how your portfolio is doing on the stock market or whatever it may be. Why is it that we're so consumed with this myopic material wealth, Jesus would say? He owns all things, and you are his. And he says to them, you are rich. You are rich. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And then he says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this, friends, is a harsh word. Harsh word. Romans, Greeks, Jews, all in the city. Christians were seen by the Romans in the earlier times as a sect of the Jews. But the Jews turned against the Christians and tried to push them out as their own category of people because they didn't like what those Christians were identifying with. Yeah, Christians identified with the Jewish history of of faith and God and Yahweh, but then they claimed this Jesus as the Messiah. And so the traditional Jewish person was ostracizing the Christians and saying, they're not a part of us. You see, the Jews had an exemption from the Romans. You were to worship or acknowledge the emperor as Lord. But the Jews had an exemption from doing that. And we could go into that. There's history to it, some uh, events that had happened, those kinds of things. But the Jews didn't have to acknowledge the emperor to operate in the commercial realm or in the social arenas. But they were worried about what the Christians were saying and doing, that they would actually push them out from their nice privileged status with the Romans. Plus, the Christians believed some really bizarre things, and they were slandered in a multiplicity of ways that were really crass. They were slandered as cannibals. They were slandered as those who liked to be involved in sexual orgies. They were slandered as as those who had nothing to do with family. They were slandered as those uh, who were actually atheists. And you're going like, come again? That's not my, my definition of Christian. Well, they proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the one that they remembered eating the bread, the body, and drinking the cup, the blood. They were in ceremonies that were cannibalistic, eating flesh and eating blood. 
they talked to each other like brother and sister. They referred to one another as brother and sister. The family unit was, high, was esteemed at the time, but then they were just calling everybody brother and sister, so they really didn't care about families. And then they always talked about loving one another, and they'd get together and challenge each other, love one another. What were they really doing? I think there was some licentiousness going on, some immorality that was just, you, know, you don't want to associate with them. An atheist, atheist, well, there was one true God to the Jews, but to the, to the Greeks, there was a multiplicity of gods. In fact, there were temples all around Smyrna at the time. Smyrna had a hill that was about 500 feet high in the middle, and around it were temples, and one end of one Golden Street and another end, there were different temples, whether to Tiberius or to other gods that they uh, were worshiping, and the Christians didn't worship the gods. And so the Christians were atheists. And so they were slandered. Have you ever been slandered (laughs) with something you're like, where in the world did that person come up with that? That is not true of me. That's not true of my life. But they're out there toting the line to people, walking your name through the mud, and you want to vindicate yourself. You want to defend yourself. But the more you try to defend yourself, I remember one time I was in a place where I was trying to defend myself about something, and the more I defended myself, they would say, see, there he is. He's defending himself. He's just what we said. I'm like, what? It's bizarre how twisted it can be. And here's Jesus saying to these Christians, I know the slander. And then he calls out the Jews. I know that these who are Jews, they're really not. They're actually a gathering, a synagogue of Satan. Whoa. Don't, I don't know what your vision is of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ doesn't mince words. Jesus Christ is tough. He's compassionate, but he will speak truthfully. And he speaks with an edge. So if you're reading scripture, somebody else is counseling you, maybe you're in prayer and you hear the inner spirit voice speaking to you, don't be hesitant to hear a hard word from Jesus. And Jesus, though he was speaking compassion to the Christians in Smyrna, was speaking a sharp word to the others because he knew the word would get around. Do not be afraid then, it goes on, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now listen to me. I want to acknowledge that Jesus says Satan, and he says devil, within two verses there. And if you ever doubt that there's a spiritual realm with the fallen angel named Lucifer, who is the devil, who has his dominion of workers that wreak havoc in this world, you can just go to Jesus and be reminded from Jesus' lips himself, from the pen of Jesus, that there is a spiritual realm that we're up against. And we are challenged and afflicted by, yes, other people, fallen sinful nature of ourselves and things we bring ourselves, but we can be afflicted in a spiritual realm. He says, I tell you, some of you are going to be put in prison and you're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. And it's debated as to what 10 days is, a little 10 days. Some people think it's 10 seasons. I really don't believe it's seasons. But I believe 10 days can be summed up as we're going to be suffering for a short period of time. Under persecution, that boom, here's another block on the chest. You didn't go into the prisons and the jails in Smyrna to stand trial to be um, released. You were in prison to stand trial to be persecuted and to be put to death. Even their persecution would have a short end because it would end 
and death for many of them. And so Jesus steps back. And he says, I, I, know, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know your slander. And I know your persecution. And one of the things I want to encourage us about, because this has been a weighted kind of subject to study this week myself, is that the Lord is there and he knows. So even when you cry out in the midst of your pain and your affliction, know that the one who created you is there to understand you. But then he wants to give them words of encouragement. The afflictions that were happening in that day did not end. Ten days, I'm not quite sure. But decade upon decade, the Christians would remain underneath this type of persecution. And one of the most famous is a man by the name of Polycarp. I don't know if you've ever heard this name before, but Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna. Now, he was discipled by the Apostle John, tradition believes. Where was he at during the time of this letter coming to them from John? Well, he was definitely not the pastor and the bishop at that time. But he was in the ranks of the Christian community most likely. And he was growing in his allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And when he was an old man, Polycarp was martyred. In fact, Polycarp is one of the what they refer to as the church fathers in the early centuries. And Polycarp was the first known martyr after Stephen from the book of Acts. And Polycarp was in his room one night and he had fallen to sleep. And he had a dream, and in his dream, his pillow caught on fire. He woke up from that dream, and he told his friends and his peers that he believed that he was going to die at the stake. Because what they would do with Christians sometimes is they would put them in a public arena on a stake and light them on fire. In fact, if I had time to go through a lot of the torture and the stuff that was depicted in some of those days of Nero and the emperors after that, that it's just despicable what they would end up doing. But here is Polycarp. He believed this would happen. And sure enough, um, a few days later, um, some from the proconsul of that area showed up, and they were to arrest him and to take him away, and he knew what it meant. He had gone just from his house to another place after some bidding, but he knew what his destiny was to be. And he says, I know, this is what God has for me. So when they came, he actually entertained them. And he says, can I get you some food? And so the soldiers were like, what's this? So he fed them. He said, would you give me an hour to pray? And so they let him have an hour to pray and then a second hour to pray. And he was off probably uh, close where they could hear. And he was praying. He was praying for Smyrna. He was, he was praying for the Christians. He was praying out to Christ. And he was praying for the soldiers and probably the proconsul. And these people were like, that came to take him. Why are we taking this old man? He, he's no threat. And he seems to be a pretty decent kind of individual. But they eventually grabbed him and they took him to the head of the proconsul. And he walked into this area and there were others around, tradition says, and they were jeering at him as he was the atheist. And then he turned to them and he pointed to them as the atheist. But then we have these words that are recorded of Polycarp. For 80 and 6 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten with the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched. 
For you do not know the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why are you delaying? Bring what you will. And so he said, bring it on. Can you imagine there they took him and they placed him uh, on this wood and they said the, the, the tradition says the Jews were actually scurrying to help get some of the wood to light him on fire because they wanted to be done with Polycarp. And so they lit the fire and tradition says this, that the winds came and blew the fire up around him and it did not touch him like the wind blows into a sail on a boat. So finally, one of the Romans had to take and threw a spear into his side, and that's how he was killed, and then he was burned, and then they took his ashes. Polycarp. Do you know what he said as he was being burned at the stake, if you will? Lord God, Father of our blessed Savior, I thank you that I have been counted worthy to receive the crown of martyrdom, and that I may die for you and for your cause. You know, 1 Peter 4.16 says this, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. You see, some of the suffering and affliction that I've referenced so far, and as you've reflected maybe on your own life here and just these moments that I've shared, has been maybe personal affliction that's come from another person. Maybe it comes because of your circumstances in life. I don't know what affliction you've identified with. But you need to know this. The affliction that the Smyrna Christians were identifying with was affliction directly associated with them proclaiming the name of Jesus. Do you have affliction because you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying in a gaudy, haughty kind of way, but just in a truth, Christ-centered way. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I know God. And somewhere you have been challenged to be able to speak that out, not just live it out. And you have come underneath some slander. You've come underneath some persecution. I want you to know this, that that is to be expected. One of the challenges I have when I read through these letters and we deal with stuff is this challenge. Where do we get the letter from Jesus that comes and says, Hey, I know what's going on there in Marietta and Temecula in your life, and I am just so happy to pull out my checkbook and bless you. You know, there's all kinds of great things I want to give you, and it's going to be smooth sailing from here until you come to be in my heaven that I've prepared for you. And I'm just so happy that uh, you're on my side and I get to be on your side. Now, I'm not being facetious there, and I don't want to demean anything, because God really, he does want to bless us, and he does want to heal us like we talked about in those things. But why do we think as Christians today in the modern era, in Western American culture, here on the west coast of Southern California, why do we think that we should receive any type of riches of a material realm when Jesus throughout the years has usually brought affliction poverty, slander, and persecution. There's other parts of the world right now that are being crushed. Christians that are being crushed. Why, Carrie, should I think that it should be different with me? And I've had to do some real soul wrestling this week because, you know, I want things to go well. I have a lot of prayer requests on where he's in out there to God. And I think he's calling me to be bold in some way. But if God's calling you to be bold in some ways, to live up and live into your faith, be wise into knowing that indeed 1 Peter 4.16 might be true for you. You might suffer as a Christian, 
So be not ashamed, but praise God when you bear his name. And that's exactly what Polycarp did. Polycarp, known as the bishop who was martyred from Smyrna. And I believe Polycarp exemplifies the kind of believer going all the way back to the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Smyrna from the book of Revelation. Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's two aspects that I want to throw before us as outlined there with the do not be afraid and be faithful. The challenge is this, to be fearless and be faithful. Now, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of being fearless and being faithful is to be what? Fearful and faithless. Which way do you go when you're under pressure? Which way do you go? Oh, what's going to happen now? Or you think worst case scenario. You turn to all the kinds of means, but you don't turn to the heart of understanding who God has made you in Christ. Be fearless and be faithful. And then he says, and you will be given the crown of life. And a crown, a crown was like the wreath. A crown is something you get when you, you won a competition or uh, the, the certain Romans or people in royalty would wear crowns, right? These Christians that were slandered and in poverty, the last thing they ever got was a crown. And Jesus says to them, you will be given a crown of life. A crown of life. I get a crown. Yeah. And that crown of life is referencing life in him, but also life eternal. I will give you eternal life. And so he gave them a challenge and he gave them a comfort. Romans 8, some of you are familiar with it. The Apostle Paul says this. Now we know that in all things God works together for the good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then? Shall we say in response to this? If he who gave his own son, how will he not also graciously give to us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he then that condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither Death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the things in the present or the future or any powers, neither uh, the height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul was calling believers out. Get your focus set. Be fearless. Be faithful. Understand where the crown of life really comes from. And so the challenge in the midst of our persecution is not to just ignore it or suck it up. It's to look to him who is the first and the last, who rose from the dead, the Alpha and the Omega, 
And he is present with you, knowing, and he is seeking to comfort you and to challenge you in those ways. You are not alone. Open Doors is a ministry that deals with persecuted Christians around the world. They say that each month 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, whether those violence acts be beatings, abductions, rape, arrest, or forced marriages. The thing is, those statistics that are thrown up there that they say are sort of an average, do you realize that that is almost doubled this last year in 2015 of what's happening around the world concerning Christians who are being killed? Almost 600 Christians a month being killed, not just because, oh, you got in the way, because of their proclamation of their faith. Because of the proclamation of their faith. I want to have us look at two stories. The first is a Christian Iraqi woman. The story comes from Decision Magazine, says this, With cancer eating away at her, the Iraqi woman faced a devilish dilemma. Convert to Islam and receive treatment or remain true to Christ and die. Ten days later, she was dead. The 45-year-old woman and her husband had made the treacherous journey late last summer to the hospital in Mosul in northern Iraq from their small village 16 miles away. A guard affiliated with the Islamic State confronted the couple when they arrived. Islamic State forces had recently overrun and seized Mosul and had begun persecuting Christians, sneering. At the two, because of their Christian faith, the guard barked his ultimatum. Convert to Islam as the price for entrance. Not hesitating, the woman responded, I am not going to leave the cross of Christ. I will not abandon it. For me, a love of life is not as important as the faith. The desire to go on living is not as important as my faith. The woman and her husband returned to their home. She died with her husband of 28 years and their 19-year-old and 8-year-old sons at her bedside. According to the husband, her final words were, I am going to hold on to the cross of Christ. I refuse to convert. I prefer death. I prefer death than to abandoning my religion and my faith. What about you? What about me? At what level do we Stay true. Jesus himself in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were bef- they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen to this testimony in closing. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hallowed be thy name. At the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. There's power in the name of Jesus. Take the third commandment, for example. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. For years, I simply thought that meant not swearing or cursing using the Lord's name, but I stumbled across a simple but incredible 
realization. Because a more literal translation of that commandment actually reads, You shall not use the name of Yahweh for worthlessness. You shall not use the name of Yahweh casually, complacently, without respect, without value. It's the moment in time I realize that I actually break this commandment all the time. And more often than not, I break it at church. How much value, how much worth do you place on the name of Jesus? As I thought through this, it reminded me of a girl called Susan from Uganda. She's 14 years old and from a strictly Islamic family. One day a visiting speaker came to her school. He spoke about this guy called Jesus who claimed he was the son of God and had come to save the world. And right there, Susan decided to give her life to Jesus. When she got home, her father found out and he was furious. In fact, on one occasion in broad daylight, he grabbed Susan and her younger brother and dragged them outside. He held a knife to their throat and said, Susan, if you do not stop going to church and worshipping God, I will kill you and your brother. But Susan didn't stop. Her father grabbed her. He took her to a room in their house and placed a mat on the floor. He told Susan to sit on that mat and do not move until you are willing to deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Her father turned around, walked out of the room and locked the door. Susan's father didn't return to that room for three months. The only way Susan survived was that while her father was out, her brother would dig a hole under the door. He would pour water into it for Susan to lap up. On occasion, he would fry up some banana and slide that under the door to his sister. After about three months, the neighbours began to wonder where Susan was and they asked her brother. He told them and they immediately called the police. When they came, they opened the door and they found Susan. She was sitting on the mat. She was alive, but only just. You see, the bones in her legs had begun to grow and conform to the way she had been sitting. And she weighed 20 kilos. They grabbed her and rushed her to hospital where they began to rehabilitate her. When Susan was asked why she hadn't tried to escape, why she hadn't even left the mat, without missing a beat, she replied, because my father said, if I was to leave that mat, I would be denying Jesus. And I couldn't do that. Worthlessness. It never even seemed to cross her mind, did it? This is exactly what the third commandment is about. A faith driven by a passion for God that realises not only to be in relationship with Him, but to be able to call on His name is among the most sacred privileges we have as Christians. A privilege the world can't conceive and a privilege that we so often take for granted. You shall not use the name of Yahweh for worthlessness. Susan wouldn't. Do you?
I cannot leave Jesus. I've decided not to leave him because he has given me eternal life. And even if I died there, I was sure that I would go to him. Susan. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close out with a song of declaration. Our belief to stand for Jesus Christ. And as they come and we sing, um, the ushers are going to come to receive to the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as your connection card. But I-